The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. The man from UNCLE, United Network Command for Law Enforcement, made its debut on US television in the autumn of 1964 and quickly became one of the defining shows of the 60s. Initially designed to cash in on the spy craze, thanks to the success of the James Bond films, UNCLE nevertheless shares more DNA with Bond than most. Norman Felton came up with the original concept, a troubleshooter who travelled the world sorting out international problems. Ian Fleming came up with the name of the agent, Napoleon Solo, and a possible secretary for Solo, April Dancer. Fleming was obliged to bow out when the series looked like it was treading dangerously close to Bond territory. To avoid a lawsuit, Felton teamed up with Sam Rolfe, and together they retooled the show, but kept the name of the lead character. The secretary would later appear in her own spin-off show, The Girl from Uncle, played by Stephanie Powers. The pilot episode entitled Solo was shot in late 1963 after an intensive casting session. It was decided by the producers to have agents who didn't look like agents, people who were unassuming and could blend in with the crowd. With that caveat, the producers still wanted a debonair Cary Grant type to lead the series. To that end, Robert Vaughn was cast as the lead Napoleon Solo, and the opening episode at least offers up a lead character that is very Bondian. Solo is suave, sophisticated, elegantly dressed, and quite the ladies' man. The pilot, a 70-minute long telefilm, filmed in colour, was cut down to 50 minutes, and aired in black and white as the series' opening episode. Retitled The Vulcan Affair, Every episode was an affair. It saw Solo try to disrupt the plans of an industrialist named Andrew Vulcan, who was negotiating to build a plant in an emerging African nation. Uncle believes Vulcan has ties to a criminal organisation known as Thrush, and that he will attempt to assassinate the premier of the African nation when he visits Vulcan's plant. Solo recruits Vulcan's college girlfriend to get close to him. The girlfriend, now a suburban housewife and mother, is transformed into a glamorous, wealthy widow, and she and Mr. Solo go to Washington to track down Vulcan. This is where Uncle deviates from Bond and other spy shows of the era. Mostly they will use a civilian, or in the parlance of the show, an innocent to help them, or sometimes the innocent will become embroiled in the scheme independently, causing Uncle to intervene. While not exactly action-packed, The Vulcan Affair was surprisingly well-written and suspenseful. A thinking man's spy show. The pilot coasts by on charm and an intriguing plot, and is led by the witty and easy-going Vaughn in the title role. I found I much preferred Uncle to Mission Impossible, the pilot episode of which I also recently watched. Uncle was more charming, warmer, more enjoyable. The Mission Impossible pilot was a tad stiff and mechanical. Uncle itself is a typical organisation of the time. 
Affiliated with no one political party, the 60s ethos instead offered up a vision of utopian globalism. The 1964-65 World's Fair postulated a vision of optimism, whereby technological advancement and peaceful cooperation were the future, and Uncle is the end result of this vision. Kuryakin is a Russian, but he's welcomed into Uncle as an experienced and competent agent, an equal who works closely with an American agent who trusts him implicitly. It wasn't just Star Trek that looked hopefully towards the future. Sadly, a vision that gets ever more naive as times pass. I've never seen an episode of The Man from Uncle, so this was a revelation. The series was originally screened by the BBC in a prime time slot from the spring of 1965 through to the autumn of 1968, long before I was born, and never seen again until the 1990s, when it received a rerun in an early evening slot on BBC Two. For reasons known only to time, I didn't see those repeats. I had seen the movies. What? I hear you say? Movies? Yes, movies. See, Uncle was one of the first shows to cobble together movies based on episodes and then release those movies in territories other than North America as second features. The Vulcan Affair was one such feature, which is why I had a curious feeling of déjà vu throughout watching it. I'd seen it as the 88-minute telefilm To Trap a Spy, which I re-watched after viewing this pilot. The film is an expanded version of the Vulcan Affair, with additional scenes featuring Thunderball actress Luciana Paluzzi. The vast majority of the extended footage is this subplot, and I actually found the Vulcan Affair to be the better viewing experience, as it was tighter, faster paced. The major difference between the two was the director-general of Uncle in the film is Mr. Allison, played by Will Kuvula, rather than Mr. Waverley, played by Leo G. Carroll. The ever-frugal Hollywood production line would not squander this extra footage. No, 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 no. They would incorporate it into the late first season episode, The Four Steps of Fur. Nothing goes to waste in Hollywood. The second surprise with the Vulcan Fur was that Ilya Kuryakin, wonderful name that, played by David McCallum, who I always thought was a co-lead, had two small scenes, which became three in the film version. Kuryakin would continue to just wander in and out of the early episodes, offering up enigmatic comments and smart one-liners, until McCallum's chemistry with Vaughn was noticed, and somebody smart promoted Kuryakin to being Solo's regular partner. Early episodes that had already been filmed that were light on Kuriakin would be sprinkled throughout the first season, with Kuriakin's presence sorely missed in episodes The Dove Affair and The Yellow Scarf Affair, and he only makes minor appearances in such episodes as The Neptune Affair, The Green Opal Affair, and The Finny Foot Affair. Interestingly, the decision to make Uncle Movies had a knock-on effect that benefited the series in the long term. The episodes that comprised the eight movies were omitted from the TV package sold overseas, so British audiences saw To Trap a Spy as a prelude to the BBC showing the series, and it, in turn, then received a bump in popularity at the box office, earning extra screenings on the back of the show's success. It being in colour was also a draw, as, despite the series moving to full colour from season two onwards, the BBC aired all four seasons in black and white. 
The movies were genuine box office smashes in the UK, topping the charts in London and making McCallum and Vaughan pin-ups overnight. Never want to miss an opportunity, the producers quickly cobbled together further movies for overseas theatrical release. The double affair was padded out with extra footage to become the spy with my face. Another chance for viewers to see a black and white episode in colour. We'll return to this one later. Creating extra footage for the films, though, was costly, even though it would ultimately find its way into the series. So to maximise profits, the practice became to write two-part episodes that more easily accommodated the movie-length running time. Thus, the two-part The Alexander Greater Affair, which opened the second season, became one spy too many in its theatrical release. The Bridge of Lions Affair, also in the second season, became one of our spies' missing. From the third season, the Concrete Overcoat Affair became the spy in the green hat, whilst the Five Daughters Affair became the Karate Killers. The Karate Killers is the one that seemed to be on TV all the time when I was a kid. In the fourth season, the Prince of Darkness Affair became the Helicopter Spies, and the series finale, the Seven Wonders of the World Affair, became How to Steal the World. The further knock-on effect from this was that, whilst the series disappeared from UK screens, the films were aired regularly throughout the 70s, 80s and 90s, it being much easier to find 90 minutes to air a one-off film than 50 minutes a week for a rerun of a long-running television series. Following my enjoyment of The Vulcan Affair, I leapt straight into the series proper, thinking I'd get something more familiar. I was greeted with a bizarre cold open in which the characters, Solo and Kuriakin, enter the Uncle HQ in New York via Del Floria's dry cleaners and then turn to the audience and tell us, directly to camera, who they are and what they do. After this cold open, Kuriakin is completely absent from the episode, the Iowa scuba affair, presumably because this was made early in the production process. It was, however, another fun segment, directed by Superman, the Omen and the Goonies helmer, Richard Donner. Here is that intro, followed by the excellent theme music by Jerry Goldsmith. In New York City, on a street in the East 40s, there's an ordinary tailor shop. Or is it ordinary? We entered through the agent's entrance, and we are now in UNCLE headquarters. That's the United Network Command for Law and Enforcement. UNCLE is an organization consisting of agents of all nationalities. It's involved in maintaining political and legal order anywhere in the world. My name is Napoleon Solo. I'm an enforcement agent in Section 2 here. That's operations and enforcement. I am Ilya Kuryakin. I am also an enforcement agent. Like my friend Napoleon, I go and I do whatever I am told to by our chief. Oh, oh yes. Alexander Waverley, number one in Section 1, in charge of this, our New York headquarters. It's from here that I send these young men on their various missions. <laughs>
This third episode, the quadripartite of her, is where the show really gels. Solo and Kuriakin are proper partners and front and centre for the entire show. It's crisply directed, again by Donna, and features guest turns from the beautiful Jill Ireland at the time, Mrs. David McCallum, and Forbidden Planet's Anne Francis, fresh from her own spy series, Honey West. Ireland is but one of the guest stars to appear on Star Trek, the other in this episode being Roger C. Carmel, following on from William Marshall in The Vulcan Affair. This being the episode that brings it all together, as well as being exciting and well-made in its own right, is probably why the BBC elected to err this first when they started erring the show. This episode spawned a sequel, The Juoco Piano Affair, a chess reference befitting the episode's plot. All the major players from the previous episode return for a rematch, the bad guys, specifically Anne Francis, having escaped the first time round. Again, directed by Donna, who even had a speaking part cameo, Jill Island is even more lovely and charming than last time, and Vaughan and McCallum have settled into their parts beautifully. One of the most surprising things to me was how good some of the plotting and dialogue was, with the playful banter between the characters. Location photography is crisp, and even the back lot stuff looked good. For those that are interested, here's Richard Donner's cameo. Well, shall we join the festivities? Oh no, Mr. Napoleon Solo, not you. You're not going to meet my friends. You'll drag them off somewhere and have them half killed. Oh, me? Don't you stand there looking so innocent. You're nothing but a whirling mess of plots and schemes. Oh, man. And you get Ilya involved too, the poor boy. Now just you go away and leave us alone. Do you mind if I have this one for the rope? Yes, I do. No, you can't. Out! 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 Very out. well, man. But I'm not going anywhere until somebody fills this up. Well, I believe somebody already has. Uncle's main adversary, Thrush, who were renamed Wasp in the film version, often seem to have vague, undefined goals. Initially, they are a quasi-terrorist organisation with no geographical boundaries, but they also seem to be a larger organisation generally, operating much like Uncle, but with a far less altruistic world view. Exactly why Thrush wants to take over the world was never dwelled upon. Nevertheless, they offer enough of a threat for all the governments of the world to band together to thwart them. One of the more notable episodes in these early days is the Project Strygas Affair. Not for any reasons of quality or innovation, although the episode is hugely entertaining, but for being the first on-screen purring of William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. Shatner is the episode's innocent, lured into helping Uncle with the promise of his debts being wiped out. Shatner helps Solo discredit a Balkan intelligence chief with a bogus secret gas, whilst Kuriakin poses as a fellow countryman and exploits the paranoia of the chief and his bumbling assistant, Leonard Nimoy. Nimoy's accent makes him sound like Londo Malari from Babylon 5, but both are fun in their roles, with Shatner showing definite star quality. Sadly, they only rarely share the screen together. The villain is Werner Klemperer, better known for the risible World War II set comedy Hogan's Heroes. One interesting thing about these Uncle episodes is how much you have to pay attention. Yes, they are fun, frothy spy adventures, clearly influenced by Bond, but the plots are quite involved and require the viewer to pay attention. This is no mere Aaron spelling fluff where you can nip out to the toilet for a couple of minutes, come back and still have no problem following what's going on. The Uncle plots require concentration. I said I'd come back to the second movie, The Spy With My Face, which is an old chestnut of a plot. 
Thrush make a double of Napoleon's solo, leading to hijinks. But, for the time, the editing and cutting are quite good, making the final fight between the two solos gripping, and the producers do a great job of making it look like Robert Vaughan is fighting Robert Vaughan. As I've already mentioned, this film was an expanded version of the episode The Double Affair, and both have their pros and cons. Unlike The Vulcan Affair, To Trap a Spy, the expanded scenes in The Spy With My Face are germane to the plot, and the excising of a big one, an uncle agent spotting the solo doppelganger and subsequently being murdered, creates a minor discrepancy in the television version. I'd recommend watching the movie rather than the episode in this case, especially for one very risque gag that would never have got past the TV censors in 1964. The Mad 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 Tea Party Affair is one of the first season's many highlights. Today's Big Trek guest star is the first big screen Catwoman, Lee Merriweather, who manages to secrete a thrush double agent into Uncle, just as Uncle are about to host a major conference featuring all of the major world leaders. Simultaneously, Uncle's security suddenly seems to have developed a few holes, leading to this week's Innocent being totally genuine for once, being neither drafted into service or aware of Uncle's existence. Zora Lampert is great as the Innocent Kay Lorison, but it's Richard Hayden who walks away with the episode as the mysterious Mr Hemingway. Especially notable for Kuriakin and Solo arguing, who gets to play the bad guy this time? I ran a check on the girl's identification. No holes in the story so far. Which may only mean she has a good cover. Guess we'll have to try the Jekyll Hyde routine. Well, she's an attractive girl. Why don't I be her friend and companion this time? You haven't played the villain for a long time. Well, that's only because you do it so much better than I do. Oh, the penalty of playing my part so successfully. Now I'm typecast. That's right. No, well, I've already gone snarl at her. You will come to her rescue soon, won't you? I'm always afraid I might get carried away with the role. The Bow Wow Affair benefits from a number of things, primarily an expanded role for David McCallum, who essentially takes point on a personal mission for Mr Waverley. C, Waverley's cousin, to whom he bears a striking resemblance and thus allows Leo G. Carroll to have a double role, is under attack from Dracula. Well, sort of. The dialogue for this one is particularly funny and pointed, with a number of witty lines, including No man is free who has to work for a living, but I was delighted to see that the big Star Trek guest star this week was Susan Oliver, aka The Green Girl, from the pilot episode The Cage. I've long had a crush on Oliver, and she plays this week's innocent as coquettish and flirty, making no bones of her attraction to Kuriakin. This made for some saucy interplay, especially for the time. It was quite progressive for Uncle to feature a woman so obviously sexual and so obviously coming on to the man. And this is the second episode I've seen in which the female characters practically throw themselves at the enigmatic Russian. There's a lot more to Ms Oliver, and for anyone interested, I urge you to check out the documentary about her, The Green Girl. The deadly decoy of her was a mid-season change in direction. For some reason, Uncle was not performing up to scratch, so to give the show a better chance, it was moved time slot. This necessitated bringing the audience up to speed, presumably because the networks assumed people only watched television one night a week. Again, this took the form of Napoleon Solo directly addressing the audience, like a 1960s version of David Addison. Here's what he had to say. Good evening. Tonight, we of the United Network Command for Law and Enforcement have an affair involving Thrush. Now, of course, you remember Thrush, 
that nasty international band of renegades. Well, let's just see how nasty they're going to be tonight. Hmm? Deadly Decoy is pretty much Midnight Run, with Solo and Kuriakin being ordered to take a Thrush defector to Washington for debrief. Of course, Thrush don't want this to happen, so Mr. Waverley also takes the defector, leaving Thrush to wonder which one is which. What works about this episode is that we, the audience, don't know who have the real defector either, and that once again Solo and Kuriakin aren't afraid to ditch each other to get the job done. Here, happenstances leave Solo with no choice but to leave Kuriakin on a train, forcing Napoleon to go solo on this one, for the last half hour of the show anyway. Something becoming apparent is that Solo clearly didn't get the memo that Uncle is a secret organisation. He tells anyone who will listen who he works for. The Never Never Refer concluded the first season, and was the first one I watched that didn't really gel for me. Whilst it still had some genuinely funny dialogue and a wonderful scene where Napoleon Solo has to awkwardly explain to Mr. Waverley and Kuriakin why this week's Innocent is an actual uncle agent from the secretarial pool who's gotten involved with an actual case. But Caesar Romero wasn't quite up to the usual standards of thrush villainy. Other episodes of note in this first season were The Shark Affair, in which Robert Culp is a sailor capturing important people for his Noah's Ark, The Finny Foot Affair, in which a young Kurt Russell is the innocent, The Brain Killer Affair, featuring future Batgirl Yvonne Craig, whilst a duo of Lost in Space cast members crop up in back-to-back episodes, The Neptune Affair, featuring Marta Kristen, and The Dove Affair, featuring June Lockhart. The latter also stars Ricardo Montalban, whilst his Trek wife, Madeline Rue, crops up in the Turbo Fur, the last episode to be directed by Richard Donner. These black and white episodes of The Man from Uncle were a pleasant surprise. Yes, trying to pass the Griffith Observatory off as Italy betrays the location budget somewhat, and the stock footage and backlots are very noticeable nowadays, but Uncle has something a lot of shows don't have anymore. Style. Robert Vaughan and David McCallum are wonderfully cool and sophisticated, bantering admirably, even when the scripts call for them to be spectacularly incompetent. The parties are swanky, the booze expensive, the clothes impeccable and the women beautiful. The scripts are well put together, with only a few showing their age in terms of structure and dialogue. Keeping the show apolitical also helps in keeping it watchable, and despite being made in 1964, what we are watching is clearly the transition from the 1950s to the 1960s. One can see it morphing before our eyes as McCallum starts growing his hair out and wearing stylish black turtlenecks, and the women's skirts creep ever upward. The leap to colour began with season two's opening gambit, Alexander the Great Affair. There's a definite feeling of change here. Whereas the first season was inspired by Bond, the books, as befits Fleming's involvement, the second season seems more influenced by Bond, the films, featuring a world-conquering villain and death traps, car chases and shootouts. That these episodes were also combined into a movie isn't a surprise, as it looks moderately budgeted, and some of the set pieces, such as Kuriakin avoiding a thresher, are exciting and well shot. Overall, the film stock doesn't look as high quality as the black and white materials, though, and I wonder if the DVD for season one was given a substantial makeover. Rip Torn is the guest star, and, starring as Alexander the Greater, a madman out to rule the world, a vague and quite ridiculous goal that I still don't understand. 
If I were to get into crime, it would be to make my life easier. Ruling the world seems like too much like hard work. The Man from Uncle ran for 104 episodes, even spawning a spin-off, the aforementioned The Girl from Uncle, which I've watched one or two episodes of, and it just seems to be exactly the same show, but with two different leads. I haven't seen much beyond this point, but the general feeling seems to be that an ill-advised diversion into camp to try and compete with Batman and the Monkeys contributed to the series' downfall. A fourth season course correction back to more serious storylines couldn't fix the problem or bring back the viewers. The series was cancelled midway through its fourth season. Whilst fondly remembered by the people that were there, Uncle didn't seem to stay in the pop culture conversation in the same way that Mission Impossible did, despite being fondly remembered in certain quarters. Certainly, in my personal experience, other than the films being screened quite regularly, the series never received the kind of resurgence of other shows of the era, such as Batman or the Monkeys, perhaps due to one of the seasons being in black and white. This didn't prevent the man from Uncle from being a joyous affair. That a show made 55 years ago could still hold my attention without the benefit of nostalgia goggles was a delight. Everything about this first season of the series was hugely entertaining. It was quite surprising how little Solo and Kuriakin worked together, with episodes focusing on one or the other, or splitting them up to handle the affair in their own way. It's hard to imagine Sam and Dean or Starsky and Hutch spending this much time apart, well at least until the third season by which time the actors start complaining about their working hours. I have no idea why this would be, as by most accounts Vaughan and McCallum got on quite well together. They certainly work well together, Vaughan's laid-back cool contrasting well with McCallum's ice-cold wit. They even reunited a few times in these roles, both officially and unofficially. In 1983, the 15 years later affair erred. This was from that bizarre subsection of telefilm, a made-for-TV movie that worked as both a reunion film for an old TV show and a backdoor pilot for new shows, a trick that never worked. The Six Million Dollar Man, The Incredible Hulk and Knight Rider all tried this and all of them failed. The reunion movies that did work, Heart to Heart and Murder, She Wrote, simply resurrected the show and did more episodes, albeit longer and no longer weekly. This sums up the return of the band from Uncle, as once the viewer gets over seeing the actors reprising their roles, one realises that the story isn't very good. For one thing, if Thrush has been inactive for 15 years, why are they suddenly back in business here? Why did Napoleon Solo resign 15 years ago? The writer doesn't bother to explain that. Apparently he's just been messing around for 15 years, running a computer company, of all things, and gambling a lot. He quit Uncle and apparently hasn't had any kind of real life since then. Kuriakin apparently stayed with Uncle for a few years longer than Napoleon and retired to be a clothes designer after a betrayal. But if Thrush has been inactive for 15 years, why is Uncle still operating? The plot concerns Thrush going nuclear, and it probably goes without saying that Kuriakin and Solo are forced to team up once again to thwart their plans. It's very odd to me that 80s TV shows often look more dated, or certainly less romantic, than 60s TV. This looks more like a standard show of the era, lacking any real visual flow. It isn't terribly interesting, and some of the performances are pure ham. Still, there's fun to be had. McCallum and Vaughan are still good value and fall back into their old bantering with seasoned ease, as you'll hear in this clip.
You kidnapped her? She kidnapped me. Oh. She wants to defect. Well, where is she now? At a penthouse in the Alexandria Park Hotel. You didn't waste much time introducing her to the decadent delights of Western civilization. I lived there. I thought your Aunt Amy lived there. There was a time. <clears throat> so, what have you been doing for the last 15 years? <laughs> surviving? Anya's? I'd say you're doing a little more than surviving. How about you? Oh, investments. A little gambling. A little traveling. My own computer business. You get a lot of Russian ballerinas wanting to defect in that line of work? <laughs> Actually, she's the first one. And she's not the reason I came looking for you. Yes, our uncle has been calling. Whatever the problem is, the answer is no. Our old uncle has been replaced by a new one. Yes, I was sorry to hear that. He's in trouble. I'm not interested. It's Saffron. He's escaped from jail. I'm still not interested. How about a hot dog? Not up to your usual culinary standards, is it? Ah, uh, one dog with ketchup and onions. What is rush to bargain with? They've got a nuclear device pointed directly at our throats. Unless I come up with $350 million within 42 hours, Sephron will detonate it. And make it look as if the Russians are responsible, no doubt. No, his ransom note said he would make it look accidental. Not only will it devastate part of the United States, but it will totally destroy our energy program. Well, how's he going to do that? Well, that's for us to find out. For the sake of the world. Don't throw the world at me. Here. Thank you. How many times did we save it? Constantly, as I recall. McCallum seems to have ditched any pretense at a Russian accent, though. The plot is the old chestnut that the heroes are reluctant to return. Well, Kuryakin is, having been betrayed on his last mission. But there's also a cameo from George Lazenby as a British secret agent who helps Solo out of a jam. Lazenby is referred to only as JB, and for the life of me I can't imagine who he's meant to be. It's not the only meta piece of casting. Leo G. Carroll, who was over a barrel, passed away in 1972, aged 85. If Leo G. Carroll was the same age as his character, Alexander Waverley, and he's only just recently passed away, that means that Waverley continued to work for Uncle until he was in his late 90s. Uncle's pension plan sucks. His part in the reunion movie was taken by former Avenger Patrick McNee, who, as usual, brings class and distinction to the proceedings. It's these casting choices, and McCallum and Vaughan's relationship, which are greater than the sum of the telemovie's parts, and allow the return of the man from Uncle to work. The plot isn't too much to write home about, but Michael Sloan's script has some witty lines and cute wordplay, and it was nice to see Judith Chapman, once ubiquitous on American television, as Uncle's version of Q. Despite not going to series, Vaughan and McCallum reunited one more time on the Say Uncle Affair, a fifth season episode of The A-Team. This episode is well worth checking out if you're an Uncle fan, as it's structured like an Uncle episode, complete with scene transition, act breaks and titles, and Vaughan and McCallum playing thinly disguised versions of Solo and Kuriakin. 
It's not a great episode of the A-Team, though, being a tad too serious for both the A-Team and Uncle. But David McCallum does have the distinction of being one of the very few people to actually be killed on an episode of the A-Team. And that was it for Uncle in its original guise. Both Vaughan and McCallum had extensive careers both before and after Uncle, appearing in many TV shows and films on both sides of the Atlantic. Both men received late career boosters. Vaughan appeared on the British drama built around Honourable Conmen Hustle and he even appeared in Coronation Street. McCallum appeared as Ducky on NCIS. Robert Vaughan passed away aged 83 in 2016. McCallum, now 88, is still working. His regular role on NCIS giving him a nice retirement fund and he's even voiced Alfred in a couple of Batman animated movies. The Man from Uncle was too fondly remembered by a subset of the fandom, though, not to be strip-mined by Hollywood for content, and in 2016, director Guy Ritchie made a surprisingly entertaining movie of the series. Henry Cavill starred as Napoleon Solo, and Army Hammer was Ilya Kuryakin. It promised to be the first in a franchise, but given Hammer's recent problems, I doubt we can expect a sequel anytime soon. The inherent 60s-ness of Uncle seems to be an essential part of its appeal, something even Ritchie's film realised, and I wonder if a modern-day remake could even do it justice. We're more cynical nowadays. Maybe we couldn't buy the British, American and Russians working together anymore. I hope that's not true. A small part of me, partly gets smaller every day, but still, wants Uncle, an organisation that represents the best of the world, a world where the bad guys are actually quite classy and don't really hold a grudge. A world where the good guys are stylish, smart, witty and attend never-ending cocktail parties. A world where globalisation and cooperation has obliterated alienation, hate and mistrust. A world in which the man from uncle could really exist. Wouldn't that be neat? It was the dawn of the third age of podcasting. 30 years after the series had launched. The Babylon podcast was a dream given form. Its goal, to discuss the place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, home away from home for established fans, newbies, John, Blaine, and guests. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It could be a dangerous place. Wait, what? But it's our last best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2024. The name of the podcast is Babylon 5, 30 Years Later. Okay, should we peruse the email sack and see what's occurred? Gene Hendricks has emailed in. Hiya, Gene. Hello, Andy. I recently finished a rewatch of the original Battlestar Galactica. And I have to say, I really did like the Young Lords when I saw it again. Yes, it requires you to accept the humanity has been destroyed, but we run across new settlements of humans every single week premise. But the writing was pretty creative for what they were trying to do. I'm a huge Bellasurio mark, so I might be biased. But I like this one as a way to give Starbucks some depth, like you said. Has to be the responsible one, and two, there's no adult-age female to hit on, means that Starbuck must act like the stereotypical warrior for once. I know it becomes a D&D &D adventure halfway through, but I can forgive that, just like I can forgive Apollo being Shane. 
It's part of how TV was back then, and since I just watched an episode of Shan Now Now last night, it must be something I'm wired to like. Gene. I have no idea what Shan Now Now is. <laughs> Sounds very 60s, though. Yeah, that's pretty much what I said. I am also a huge Belisario mark. I think he's one of the more notable American television producers of the 70s, 80s and 90s. I don't think he gets the uh, the credit that he deserves, quite frankly. Uh, P.S. I was today years old when I realised that Noah Hathaway, also boxy, played Aturu. Atreyu? Is that how I pronounce that? In the never-ending story. Talk about two completely opposite roles. I have never seen the never-ending story, but I'm aware of the song, thanks to Stranger Things. So, oh, and he sent me a link to YouTube. Let me click on that link. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child returns to West End. Oh, it's going to play an advert first, isn't it? Barbie Benton was on Shanana. Wasn't she a Playboy girl? Oh, this is this a sitcom thing? And then there's adverts for cars. Okay, that's what Shanana is. That's from 1979. So, okay, so it wasn't a 60s show. I was close, wasn't it? Robert Ludwig has emailed in. Hi, Andy. Hello, Robert. I am just catching up on some of my podcasts, which seems to be a pattern. Catch up on some, let others fall behind, catch up on them, etc. In the past couple of weeks, I've caught up on everything in the palace. Here are my thoughts on the episodes. Well, that's why we're here, Robert. Number 196, Moonlighting Part 3. I said before that I didn't see much of seasons 4 and 5. I know I saw a handful, but I couldn't tell you which episodes, except for the one where Maddie loses the baby. Probably because of Bruce Willis doing the baby voice in the episode, if I remember correctly, and then doing the baby's voice in Look Who's Talking. That is correct, he actually plays the baby in the Moonlighting episode. He doesn't just do the voice, but as you correctly pointed out, he does do the voice in Look Who's Talking. Uh, obviously, this follows the news that Bruce Willis is retiring from acting at age 67, having been diagnosed with aphasia, which is a particularly horrible dementia disease. Um, I wish him all the best. As I mentioned numerous times throughout the three-part Moonlighting episodes, I've, I've got a lot of time for Bruce Willis. I know he's been churning out a lot of movies of late. Now it becomes apparent why. But uh, uh, for me, I'll always have a massive soft spot for him because of David Addison. And he's done a lot, a lot of great movies that you may not remember. You know, go back and check out The Last Boy Scout and Pulp Fiction and some of the other things that he's done. And 12 Monkeys. 12 Monkeys is a great film, as is Looper. He's, he's a guy who he doesn't get the credit he deserves, really, for, for redefining what the action hero is. You know, before 1989 and Willis, action heroes were Schwarzenegger and Stallone. They were overly muscled, monosyllabic in many ways, although Schwarzenegger was very, very entertaining. But they weren't, you know, every men. Bruce Willis wasn't the best looking guy in the world. He didn't have a physique like a bodybuilder. So when he has to run over glass, glass, gives a shit about glass in Die Hard, you bought it. And he went through. The vast majority of his career taking interesting roles and trying interesting things. I think it's fair to say that from my point of view, I don't think he ever had a role as good as Moonlighting for spotlighting his particular talents. But he's done a lot of movies and a lot of them are better than you remember. And it may, I may do my, um, well, you know what? I may do a top five or top ten 
favourite Bruce Willis movies. That may be something I do further down the line. Okay. Uh, Robert continues, 197, Spider-Man and the Monkeys. Not much to say on Spider-Man. Nobody had anything to say on Spider-Man. I don't think anyone else read that issue. Oh, I have the issue. Oh, well done. Read it, and when it came out, and I haven't read it again. Didn't remember it when you talked about it. Poor Paul Jenkins. Because that was a good issue, man. The Monkeys, I have watched a few episodes. I think I was introduced to them in 1989. And they were the second half hour with the 66 Batman being the first half. One of the local channels put them on due to the 89 Batman movie. I don't know why the monkeys were put on, but they were there. Well, the Penguin is in an episode. Well, Burgess Meredith playing a Penguin-adjacent type character is in an episode. I don't know if that's a good enough reason to put it on just because Batman had a film, but whatever. 189, The Champions. Never heard of them before. Now, go and check it out. It's a good show. 199, Amazing Spider-Man 151 through 156. I don't think I've read any of these. With that said, I like to hear information about my favourite hero that I didn't know before. A little history lesson. Number 200, Bond. It was interesting to hear your rankings. I know some of my favourites were lower on your list than I would have put them, but that's what's great. We can have a different idea on our favourite movie rankings of a franchise and still enjoy listening about them. Hear, hear. Young Robert. Couldn't agree more. Bond's a broad church. And of all the fandoms, with the exception of that Bond Not Blonde bollocks that went on around 2004, I found the Bond fandom to be the most welcoming of different opinions. There's even a growing movement at the moment. I don't know if you've seen this on social media in the, in the Bond arena of appreciation for a view to a kill. And I'm here for it. You know, I am here for all those people who grew up and the first Bond film they saw was A View to a Kill and now they look back on it and they love it and they're all about defending it. And I'm here for that. Even though it's not one of my favourites, I totally am on board them defending that film. Robert continues, the only thing I know for sure is my bottom five are all the Daniel Craig movies because I've not seen them yet. Oh, fix that, dude. I will get around to watching them at some point, but just haven't. If you watch them all back to back, right, let me know what the experience is. Because a lot of people, and I'm going to do this at some point, a lot of people are saying if you watch all five of those like consecutively every night over five nights, like you strip them or whatever, they work much better. So I'm, I'm very interested to hear somebody who does that, who brings no preconceptions to it. Because I'm obviously going to bring preconceptions to it because I love the Craig ones and I've watched them all multiple times. Including Spectre, yes. Sorry, but I do. So it'd be interesting to hear what somebody who has no preconceptions brings to that. Number 201, Battlestar Galactica. The only thing I really remember from childhood were the Cylons and the Vipers. So it's interesting to listen to someone talk about the episodes and maybe one day go back and watch them. Lately, I've been on a kick and watching Disney's Gargoyles. Did you ever watch this? I did watch Gargoyles on occasion. It did get shown over here, but I'd be damned if I remember where. I think it got shown... Was it contemporaneous with Batman the Animated Series? Maybe it got shown with Batman the Animated Series. I know it was on in the mid-90s, and the only reason I caught it was that it was still in college. You would often have the TV on. I remembered liking it. I'm enjoying it again on Disney+. Plus. Thank you for your podcasts. Robert Ludwig, Nevada, Iowa. You are very welcome. Thank you for your email. Okay, I've got a couple more still in the sack. Jack and Rob McCarthy. Jack Bone and Rob McCarthy have emailed in. So you get an extra mention, guys, because unfortunately it's that time again where I have to swan off and do other things. And I also like to keep these when it's not special episodes. 
between 45 minutes and an hour. If you want to be like Gene and Robert, email heykidscomics at virginmedia.com with your thoughts. I always like hearing from you, especially when they're nice and considered and well-written, like today's emails were. Uh, and it's all going to be okay, he says through gritted teeth. Uh, and uh, But I'll be good to each other, be nice to each other. Let's make the world of the man from uncle a real thing, should we? Let's make that nice place where we can all live and life's a never-ending cocktail party and we wear black turtlenecks and talking to our watches. That'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Take care and I'll see you all next time. Goodbye.